Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, CHAPS, C-H-A-P-P-S, an acronym for Clockable Hours Application Process Pay System. And Larry Pinson, he's the inventor of this and his book, CHAPS. We welcome Larry to Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Larry. How you doing, Steve? Great to have you with us. Uh, you say the pay system used by the U.S. Postal Employees to record clockable hours is complex and difficult to comprehend even by the supervisors, not just the employees. So your system, you call it CHAPS, is a simplified pay system designed for the postal payroll system. And in fact, it could be used in many different applications. Well, first of all, Larry, why don't you give us a little of your background and why you decided to do this? Okay, uh, first of all, I uh, was working for the post office for uh, 15 years. And when I got there, uh, I wanted a job very badly. And so uh, they told me that I would be getting 20 hours, guaranteed 20 hours a week for pay. And then, then I, I went in a panic mode. I said, I can't live off no 20 hours a week for pay. And then they said, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. You will get uh, 40 hours a week, and you will definitely get overtime, okay? And I said, well, okay. And that that came to uh, to be the truth. I got 40 hours a week, and I got overtime. But so I was wondering where the money came from for overtime. See, uh, the post office uh, don't have money for a part-time worker. Uh, the money, only the full-time workers can get the money. That's the reason only a full-time worker can get a bid. A lot of, a lot of uh, uh, postal workers don't understand what a bid is. So let me break it down to you. A bid is a yearly schedule. Uh, your start time and ending time and your days off. That's all what a bid is. Okay. And uh, a full-time worker, they cannot uh, get their clockable hours if they uh, 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 don't come to work. If they, if they don't come to work, they are not entitled to clockable hours. And so, therefore, they have to pay somebody else to do that work. And that's when the post office should fill in a part-time worker to take his place or either fill in a full-time worker it's on a non-scheduled day, on the sixth day, or either on the seventh day. That's how it's supposed to be done. Now I'm gonna break it down to you. Like I'm gonna give you an example for the uh, the letter carriers. Okay, the reason the reason uh, we have uh, uh, the letter carriers deliver mail late in the afternoon is that they're not scheduled properly. They're only scheduled for a five five day work week, and uh, you have to schedule the people. Well, well, everybody for a seven-day regular work week, 
and an eight-day holiday work week. That's including Saturdays and Sundays. Okay, the Postmaster General, he he noticed, and, and, and all they're doing is scheduling people for a five-day work week. So what, it, what, what they would say, let's cancel the Saturday and Sunday uh, uh, delivery uh, day. But, and then uh, they'll put that in the paper, and then the, uh, the paper will write, hey, uh, the post office is going to cancel uh, the Saturday and Sunday uh, delivery date because they're going broke and they can't afford to. Now, the post office do not pay the employees. Uh, I'm going to make that perfectly clear right now. Uh, we pay ourselves. But anyway, I'll break it down a little bit further. If you read the book and you understand exactly where the money goes, uh, so there's a lot of myths in the post office. Uh, the post office uh, employee will tell you they work eight hours a day for eight hours pay. That's not true. The post employee will tell you that they get paid every two weeks. Uh, that's not true. They'll tell you that they work a calendar year, 52 weeks, and that's how the uh, the base of the uh, pay pay what is based on the yearly salary is based on. That's not true. It's actually it's based on a three year fiscal year pay system. It's three years and one calendar year pay system. That's why everybody they tell the employee that your your retirement pay is based on your highest three, but they never explain to you that you're working on the three-year system. And uh, 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 if you read the book and, and you'll see how all the money is, is, is broken down and, and carried out. See, the, the, uh, with the main thing, the postal worker has to understand, um, all they want to do is overtime, overtime, okay? But there's no overtime in an eight-hour day. So uh, the, the postal supervisors will not schedule the work week Properly, and so you have to schedule the work week, uh, schedule it on, and then you got to schedule it off. With my four in the box pay system, that's the only way it'll work. So, using a letter carrier, uh, you got to uh, have a letter carrier work five days and be off Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That means that you have four letter carriers, and you got to divided up in three three bids, two seven day bids and one six day bid. So it comes to a total a total of uh a hundred a hundred and sixty hours that you have to work in, in that in that one week. And then therefore that'll that give the uh uh the worker to be off those Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And but it always be three people three employees working uh, uh, during the week, and on Sunday it'd be two two employees working, and that's how you would eliminate uh, the overtime, and if you, if you keep that schedule, and you can use this nationwide in any job. Okay, I get to use example of letter carriers, and then uh, if you want to go to the AO, uh, AO is a uh, uh, area post office, and uh, a lot of times you have long lines in there. And uh, people are agitated, uh, the employee and the customer, because they feel that they don't have to send a long land. Okay, if they're properly scheduled in the AOs, uh, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have that problem, not at all. Uh, and so 
uh, and the AOs, they they uh, uh, would have to use two tours, uh, tour tour uh, two and tour three, schedule the uh, people that are properly, no problem. And then in the press, you got to use three tours, tour one, tour two, and tour three. And uh, they have the proper play location. Uh, the key to this, you got to make sure that you put everybody in a proper pay location, and then you got to explain to them, uh, the worker, that is uh, uh, how long is a pay period. Uh, in order to uh, earn one week one on your paycheck, you have to work 160 hours in order to earn one week week one. And then on week two, you have to do the same thing. Uh, you have to work another 160 hours to earn another week's pay. But all this is calculated into uh, uh, different sections and different boxes, I call it. And so as, as the day is broken down, people think that you work five days a week for your pay. That's not true. You have to fill different boxes. Uh, so in other words, you have to uh, 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 work, and, 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 and the pay period is over, you have to work 320 hours. 80 hours go for this year's salary, 80 hours go for next year's salary, and uh, 4,160 4, hours go for your benefits. And as that's how it's, it's worked out for 26, for 26 uh, uh, pay periods. And uh, you, you don't get a, a check every two weeks. You get issued a check every 21 days. And uh, it's not a total of a 52-week uh, pay system. It's a 60-week pay system. Uh, the, in, in the previous year, you got the, uh, the first, the, the, the last two months of the year, it's always paid to you the first, the first pay period in the following calendar year. So it's a total of, of uh, uh, 60 weeks. And that's how it's broken down, but it's not broken down. And, and, and the people at the post office do not understand that. But they uh, are rather to have overtime. And, and, and it's, like I said, there's no such thing as overtime. Okay, so where's the money coming from? The money is coming from, uh, like I said, a full-time employee. I, I can give you an example and break it down. It's kind of easy for you. Uh, so, like, a, a new employee come in, and so he's at the bottom of the list. So as he, as he works, he goes up the scale. You know, year, yearly he gets a, a salary, and it goes up and goes up. Uh, the full-timer, he have all the money. So, so I put it to you like this. Like a full-timer is making a $1,000 uh, 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 a week. And so uh, he takes off he takes off for uh, his annual leave uh, a week. So therefore, he, he uh, 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 have to have, the folks have to schedule a part-time worker to come in and do that week's work. But everybody's on an assumption that one week work is is is, is to pay for uh, uh, the whole thing, but the pay period is not it's not over. Uh, you have to have three more weeks to be uh, put in there. So when a full time uh, a postal worker takes off, he has to uh, uh, sacrifice eighty hours. I mean, uh, uh, um, forty hours, and then uh, 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 of, of his regular work. Because he didn't do it, somebody he had to pay somebody else to do it, and then uh, he had to use his forty hours of annual leave that he already accrued it, and so now he's going to get 
uh, he'll get a thousand dollars, but and the uh, uh, other thousand dollars is supposed to go to the part-time worker, but he's not entitled to that because he haven't made the uh, reach the top of the salary yet. So now the post office are bank. Let's say he, he gets five hundred dollars. The post the post office will bank the five hundred dollars. Now I think that's so unfair, and uh, 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 I don't know what to do, but. You got to remember. You got to remember that uh, that worker. He's gonna work forty hours a week for uh, uh, the four weeks, and so he's gonna have to do the same thing as a, a, a regular worker is. He's gonna have to accrue for his benefits, and if he's allowed to. I heard that since I left in twenty oh nine, uh, the new workers are not allowed to accrue for any benefits. They're not getting any benefits now. So I, I don't know anything about that. So all I'm telling you. Is what this is the way it's supposed to happen, right? And yeah, so uh, the post office is discouraging people to work. It's just like the minimum wage, you know, like, like the fast food chain. Uh, it's uh, by paying people uh, a decent wage at, at fifteen dollars an hour for uh, unskilled labor. That's perfectly fair and, and, and fine, but you know, it's all because there's always money there. It's always going to be an overage because you got to remember you're working the you you're working for the year you're working a total of four thousand one hundred and sixty hours extra for your benefits, and I, I don't see why you cannot get that money, but it's wasted. It's wasted by you not being properly scheduled, and the uh, the, the people don't understand how they're getting paid, and they don't understand where the money coming from. Uh, they'll want to go out there and stay on the clock and, and, and get that money uh, by staying on the clock. But if you, if everybody stay in that lane, every tour stay in that lane, and every and every letter carrier is scheduled properly, you know, to be replaced, uh, you won't have that problem. And all you got to do, you, you should get a stipend check every quarter. And so that, that's when the po- post office clean it, uh, clear up the books, and, you know, and put the money where it's supposed to be. So you should get a, a stipend check for that for those hours that you work that you didn't get paid for because you did a heck of a job. Because I know when I went out there to the post office when I first started, uh, I was getting like uh, short change, and uh, I'm taking somebody else's place, and I'm doing a better job than he's doing, you know. And so, uh, very powerful, very proud of, of working for the post office. And you have a lot of a lot of proud people, good workers that work for the post right. office. Right. But this, this, the system would, would beat them down, and then uh, the public would get a bad taste in their mouth uh, about the workers and call call them lazy and whatever. But if the post office uh, uh, postmaster, he's the one that's causing all these problems. Now, because uh, I say he's the one because he's in charge, and they are following his orders. You know, right. the orders should be changed, and, and, and the rules should be changed. Especially, especially on on sick leave, uh, uh, you had to call in if you want to be off. You had to call in to use your sick leave. It shouldn't be called sick leave. And I don't know why. I know why, but you know, I, I don't care to say. I know why they call it sick leave, but uh, it shouldn't be called sick leave. It should be called personal leave. You 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 earn you accrue a hundred and four hours every year, and that's your money. You work for it. And those first four hours in your benefits, and that four 
4,160 hours, uh, that's what you work for. So at the end of the year, you work 8,320 hours every year. That's what you work. But you only get paid for uh, 2,080. Well, it's a creative way to look at all this and a way to help make sense out of it for most people, like you point out, who work for the post office who don't understand, even the supervisors. So Larry Pinson, he is the author of his book, CHAPS, Clockable Hours Application Process Pay System. Larry, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, you go to X Leavers. Uh, either you go to my website, chappaysystem.com, and you will see my author uh, name and all the information on it. Uh, uh, you can get the book two different ways. Uh, you can get the, uh, the paper copy, or you can get an e-book. I, the e-book is, is less than $4. And uh, uh, the pay copy, I think it's $22 plus posted. And I think everybody, especially uh, everybody that wants a job and needs a job, should use this and buy this book. I'm talking about everybody that that, that want to work and everybody that works for a government, federal, state, or city that always come up uh, a budget short. So this chapter uh, pay system will eliminate the budget. So you got to worry about raising people's taxes because people are tired of uh, paying all these high taxes right. for no reason. You know, and then uh, people running overseas with jobs Take them overseas. Now you stay here because this, this, this is your homeland. So you use chaps. You ain't got to worry about that. You know, you, you been charged higher taxes and stuff like that. You know, there's no reason for it. Now you know what? If, if I was a millionaire, if I was a millionaire, uh, it's up to me to, to want to really pay uh, higher taxes. But hey, I think everybody uh, uh, don't feel that. Every millionaire don't feel that way. And so that's why millionaires, they be looking for loopholes and all that stuff. But I cannot, really, I cannot blame them for the simple reason that the government, these governments uh, don't have to uh, charge taxes to provide jobs for American people. Right now they're charging taxes, and they still cannot provide jobs for my federal, uh, my, my fellow uh, soldiers. You know, and, and I think the United States of America, and now uh, you can't provide a job for somebody to go over there and risk his life, get his legs shut off, a head shut off, an arm shut off. You can't give him a job, you know? That's crazy. I know I said head shut off, you know, you can't work there, but, but <laughs> I'm just saying. Right. Uh, you should have a, a system, a pay system, and I'm talking about everybody that do business in this world, because a lot of times we're over there for those big corporations trying to protect their interests over there. So that big corporation should be able to give me a job when I come back. You run chap, you ain't got to worry about it, you know, because you don't have to pay. Uh, no, corporations don't have to use money to pay for human resources. Private businesses do not have to have no, no, uh, use money to, to pay human resources. And, and, and the government definitely don't have to be raising taxes and using taxes and abusing taxes. Uh, to provide jobs for American citizens. Well, Larry, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much for being on Ex Libris On Air. Uh, thank you, Steve. Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our author, Luis G. Cueva, has written a book titled Forsaken Harvest, Haciendas and Agrarian Reform in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915-1940. And Luis joins me from California today. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much. This is an extensive work, uh, over 500 pages. Why did you feel compelled to tell this story of the agrarian culture in Mexico, and especially in the Jalisco area? Well, it's really the story, as it says in the uh, uh, beginning of the book, it's the story of my parents. My mother and my father were from a little village town in Jalisco, and it's the story of their generation. And Jalisco is a very important state in Mexico. It's the state where the tequila comes from. There's a little town actually called Tequila. Mm-hmm. And so all of the, the liquor that comes from Mexico is uh, from the state of Jalisco. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. But also uh, it's where the mariachi music, which is the big bands with the violins and the trumpets, all of that originated in Jalisco. It's a very colorful culture. And uh, so that's part of the reason I chose uh, this particular region. Uh, President Lazaro Cardenas was the uh, president of Mexico during the, what, 1935 to 40. Was that a time when your parents were also in Jalisco? Yes, they were basically adolescents at that time. Uh, They were uh, under a very difficult time period in Mexican history. It uh, there was a very uh, destructive, bloody civil war that uh, it was a religious civil war, not too different from what we see in the Middle East today, uh, except it was a, almost, I would refer to it as a Christian jihad, kind of a holy war against the government, and that occurred from 1926 to 1929. Actually, my father's father, my grandfather, Vicente, was one of the main rebel generals against the government, and the people suffered enormously in the region because of the uh, military confrontations that were taking place. And that combined right immediately afterwards with the Great Depression, the Global Depression of 1929, 
led to very difficult conditions and uh, widespread uh, famine, hunger, malnutrition in the region and other parts of Mexico, which was known as Los Tiempos de Hambre, the Times of Hunger. And so that was a big uh, part of uh, why I uh, chose to look into this time period. President Cardenas, what influence did he have during that time frame, and why is he important to your story? Well, President Cardenas was a military general during the Mexican Revolution of 1910, and he was a populist, he was a progressive, he was very uh, concerned about the poor people, unlike many other politicians. So he was really a hero, probably the greatest uh, a political leader that Latin America has ever produced. Uh, some Americans don't like him because he nationalized the uh, petroleum industry, took the properties belonging to the Rockefeller family, Standard Oil of California, uh, Shell, and other uh, 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 petroleum c- companies, and nationalized them. And today that nationalized company is known as Pemex. Uh, the Mexican national petroleum industry. Uh, So that was a major uh, achievement for the country of Mexico. And uh, his other great achievement for President Cardenas was what's referred to as the Great Land Reform, which is what this book is about. And basically, uh, again, some Americans don't like this because it's redistribution of land, taking the land from the big, uh, wealthy hacienda property owners, very wealthy families, very powerful, that had dominated Mexico for over 300 years. And their system of land ownership was basically holding Mexico back uh, economically. They, they uh, were uh, impeding the growth of a market economy. They were impeding the growth of the capitalist system. So even though he was kind of a revolutionary, kind of a radical President Carter, and that's what he was really doing, was trying to develop the, the capitalist economy, the market economy in Mexico. Over 500 pages, uh, well-researched. You have many footnotes, many uh, photos and sketches in your book. Why did you set out to do this? Uh, besides referring to your family history, was there a, a deeper message that you're trying to convey? Yes, uh, there was actually, because uh, when I was in the university in graduate school, this was a topic that I chose uh, for my dissertation, uh, which I completed in 1994, and uh, I had come to realize at that time that there was a school, an academic school of uh, revisionist historians. Uh, many of them American historians, who were very critical of the reforms that President Cardenas undertook during this time period. And uh, so they were kind of at odds with what my whole idea of what happened during this uh, era. So I kind of set out to prove them wrong. Not everything that this revisionist school says is incorrect. They have good reasons for a lot of their, uh, uh, you know, uh, criticisms of President Cardenas. But in some areas of Mexico, such as Jalisco, the reforms that he implemented were very uh, well designed, very uh, f- uh, forward-looking, and that's part of the 
the reason uh, the book is important today is because these reforms that he implemented 70 years ago really can serve as a model of uh, economic development, uh, agricultural economic development in the poor third world underdeveloped countries of the world. And uh, so basically what he was doing, he set up a system of uh, based on agricultural cooperatives, what we would refer to as a pro-small farmer model, uh, a system of development that favors the, the poor people, the, the peasants, uh, small uh, farmers, small agricultural producers. Uh, and uh, he did this through the establishment of cooperatives. And uh, another thing that Americans don't look too friendly upon would be that he established uh, strict market controls over the production, distribution, and prices for agricultural consumer goods. So this is kind of the revolutionary aspect of uh, his policies. But it was intended really to give a chance for the small farmers to be successful within the capitalist economic system, to give them a system that would allow them to not only raise their crops, but also to be able to sell a portion of those crops in the market at prices that would allow them to be uh, small entrepreneurs, uh, small successful farmers. Your project, Forsaken Harvest, uh, was a lengthy process, nearly 27 years. Share with my audience why it took 27 years and who you hope to reach with your writing. Uh, It took 27 years because, like you said, I'm a slow writer, but, you know, I was talking to my mentor in college a few weeks ago, and I presented him a copy of the book, and uh, he's doing the same thing. He's working on a project right now that uh, is taking him over 20 years, and he's, like, uh, concerned that his wife is getting tired of him, you know, going down to Mexico and doing this research. Uh, But I told him, you know, well, sometimes when you produce a quality piece of literature, sometimes it takes, you know, decades to to do that. It's not an easy thing, and... uh, uh, but uh, in 1986, I transitioned from the master's program at the University of California, San Diego, to the, in the history department, and I transitioned from the master's program to the Ph.D. program, and uh, I had to come up with a, t- a topic for my dissertation. And I was always very interested in agrarian studies, uh, you know, peasant populations of poor people around the world. Most of the people in the in the world today are uh, uh, considered peasant populations. Those are the poor people. And uh, so it was something that I was very interested in, and uh, that's what, uh, uh, you know, motivated me. And uh, it was kind of by accident that I came across these reforms that President Gardenas implemented, and uh, as I said before, these can uh, serve as a model for economic economic uh, growth development today in these poor, underdeveloped countries. So that's kind of why the book is important. Is this a book that's going to be embraced more by uh, the scholastic folks, the people who, who love detail, love history, and, and love uh, an intense read, or is this going to reach also a wider audience, do you think? Well, I 
think it's interesting. There's, you know, I've revised this, uh, the chapters so many times, you know, hundreds and hundreds of revisions and going over it back and forth. And But I've always found it to be the material is very interesting. It's kind of exciting material. Not everything. Some of it's a little bit boring because it's, you know, about land and agriculture. But there's some interesting stuff in this book. And uh, uh, the... Uh, you know, when I finally finished uh, publishing the book, when I finally finished the manuscript and turned it over to Ex Libris for publication, I started thinking to myself, well, who's really going to want to read this old, boring history like this, Mexican history? And uh, I started thinking more and more about it, and I got on the Internet, and I started looking up these humanitarian relief organizations around the world, and also another group that are related to them, which is the international development agencies, many of them connected to organizations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And so I made a huge list of all of these different agencies and uh, humanitarian relief groups and started sending them, you know, uh, some information about the book. And uh, I've sent uh, copies uh, of the book to some very highly placed individuals within this whole movement uh, of, uh, you know, the fight to end global hunger. And the response that I've gotten so far has been really excellent. Uh, People are very interested in what I have to say because these agencies are in the process right now of looking for a model of economic development that is, as I mentioned before, pro-small farmer uh, friendly that's going to allow the poor people to, uh, to be able to participate within the capitalist system. And uh, ever since 2008, when the global economy went into recession and you started having food riots in other parts of the world, including the, uh, the uh, Arab Spring in the Middle East, uh, these agencies have had kind of a change of heart and uh, they've kind of turned around their thinking more in favor of what my book says, which is that you're never going to end the problem of global hunger unless you come up with a, uh, uh, this uh, so-called uh, pro-small farmer model that allows the poor people to be successful, to feed themselves, to feed their families, and at the same time be able to come up with a little bit of surplus cash so that they can you know, the, enjoy the benefits of the market economy. You've included some uh, personal, not personal tales, but some uh, personal accounts of uh, people of that era, some of the challenges they went through. Which of the chapters do you think is going to stand out to the reader and uh, engage them? Oh uh, well, uh, the, one of the most interesting chapters, uh, kind of uh, dramatic chapters, would be the uh, fifth chapter, which has to do with how the landowners use political repression against the poor people. Uh, the poor people were applying to the government to get land uh, resources. And uh, the, obviously, the large landowners, the hacendados, the owners of the big hacienda estates, they didn't want to give up their land, and so they resorted to very uh, brutal forms of political repression and murders, assassinations, uh, picking out leaders, 
of uh, the, the various groups that were applying for land and having them knocked off, uh, death squads, uh, uh, decapitations, and, uh, you know, dismemberment of bodies. It was very, you know, very nasty uh, stuff that they, uh, even though these families were, you know, very illustrious families and uh, some of the most, uh, you know, educated people in Mexico. But when it came to protecting their private property, they could become very brutal. Mm. This must have been very challenging to write 500 and some pages, plus the research that went into it. Forsaken Harvest is the name. It's the Haciendas and Agrarian Reforms in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915 to 1940. Luis, where do we get copies of this book? Well, I do have a, a website for the book. It's uh, the, you go to forsakenharvest.com. Uh, so that's all one word, forsakenharvest.com, and that's the website for the book. And then there's a section there where it says, you know, buy the book, and that will link you directly to the Ex Libris online uh, bookstore. And you can purchase. It comes in either the hard uh, hardback copy, which is something like thirty-four dollars, the paperback, which is twenty some dollars, and also very good is the ebook copy, which is applicable to like uh, uh, Kindle and Nook and iPads, I believe. So you can get an ebook copy for like under nine dollars, and I think for people who have access to Kindle and Nook, that that would be the best way to go. But it's a very beautiful book because the co- the cover, uh, a friend of mine from college, is a really wonderful artist. He did a beautiful cover to the book, and also there's these ink illustrations at the beginning of each chapter that are just beautiful pieces of. Uh, of art, uh, one of them I truly believe is a is a artistic masterpiece on the level of uh, a Picasso or uh, Diego Rivera, and uh, so these uh, the art in the book is is worth the price you pay in it just by itself. Wonderfully done, author Luis G. Cueva. The title of the book, Forsaken Harvest, Haciendas and Agrarian Reforms in Jalisco, Mexico, 1915-1940. Thank you, Luis, for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on DougieNet.com.
Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book has a dire prediction and a warning, perhaps, titled The Last Election, an American prophecy. And our author who joins me from northern Michigan is James Glenn Reynolds. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Why did you get interested in politics, which I am assuming this book contains a lot of that information, 181 pages? What compelled you to write this? Well, I'm alarmed about the direction of our country, and I believe we're headed for a last election like we did in, 19, uh, in 1860 because uh, we are hopelessly divided in two ways of life, uh, not dissimilar from the way we were divided uh, a century and a half ago. And I'm seeing alarming uh, contrasts to, uh, and similarities to that time and decided in my uh, uh, later years, before I uh, get to the point where I'm not that productive, I'm going to write this book because it's amazing to me that we are not having a conversation about what the end is for our uh, hopeless political division. And there is an end, and it can be not, it's not, not pretty, and we ought to be talking about it, and nobody's talking about it. You have a background in, uh, in commerce, in business. Uh, as a writer, is this your first book? Yes, it's my first book, and it may be my only book, unless, uh, unless I hit a chord. And the reason I wrote it is I'm thinking that tens of millions of my fellow Americans are thinking the same doggone thing that I'm thinking which is, where is this all leading? We are going to break up again. We can't get along. So, so I decided to, to, to you know, pe- maybe people all over the country, ordinary folks, this is not written for intellectuals. It's written in plain uh, language with lots of facts, uh, because I did my research, so that if you're sitting in a drugstore in Iowa or Missouri or uh, Tennessee and, you, and you're thinking this stuff, talking around uh, maybe the breakfast table, and you read this book and you say, gee, I'm not the only one thinking this. Here's a man who, who thought about it hard and wrote about it, and maybe as Americans we ought to be talking about it. Your cover shows four different distinct countries. From my understanding of an American prophecy, the last election, are you suggesting that perhaps the United States could break up into four distinct different countries? Yes, it could break up into one or uh, two or more, and I'm not sure. The... the uh, uh, we're a very different people, and we had a common thread for many, many years. So over 100 years, we had a common thread after the Civil War of, of building this empire, going to work, accepting immigrants. And, and, but we were very different people with this common thread. But the common thread bound us together, and I do write about that in a book. And, and if, if we lose this common thread, which I think we're, we've lost it, and I think we're losing our empire and I think we are going to be crushed by our overwhelming debt and the promises we made to ourselves and, and, um, and this huge central authority that's trying to make one rule for all. When this all happens, we're, we're, we're probably going to break up into, into sections of the country where we have more things in common. And the people in Dixie, for example, in the South have a lot, have, have more of a culture in common people in the, in, the, in the south, you know, breadbasket area, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, they have things more in common with Dixie. So I'm thinking that whereas the, the, the people who live in the Great Basin of the Wyoming and Dakotas and the 
uh, which uh, Joel Garrow in a book called The Empty Quarter, they may have things more in common uh, and less in common with Dixie and less in common with the Northeast. So I'm just thinking, and then there's uh, what we call Ecotopia out on the West Coast, which is a whole different world. We all know about that. Hmm. So I'm thinking this is all possible. Um, And it it might not be a bad way to... uh, to try to get along in this continent. At least we ought to be having a conversation about it. Central authority is a major issue. How do we correct what's going on? I don't know that we can. You know, capitalism is, has what we call creative destruction. Uh, when, when, we, when, when tools or devices or ways of doing things uh, outlive one another, they get destroyed and new things get created. And we do not know how to control this central authority that we've created. We've created it slowly over about 80 years uh, with uh, three or four accelerations in the 60s and then uh, now very recently with the health care law. Um, uh, but we do not know how to, to, to establish it and maintain it. It keeps growing. And we can't, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican or whatever your political persuasion, you can, we, we, have, we don't know how to control it. So, so it may be that we have to um, shrink it by separation so that societies can, can rebuild and start new institutions and rebuild them more to their suiting. Do you have any personal concerns about perhaps a strong leader taking over and establishing a typical third world dictatorship in the United States? You know, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm not as worried about that, except the central authority we've seen now. We saw this in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, over the weekend that the police, the, the, the local police, not just the federal government, now have essentially an, an incredibly uh, strong military capabilities that's been provided by the federal government and SWAT teams and, and uh, vehicles that are armored. And, uh, and it looks like uh, governments are gearing up for, to suppress civil, civil uh, uh, unrest. And this is a little scary. I think that our, in a way, we, we are in a dictatorship of the institutions because the Congress can't control it. We see that now. And we can't control the growth of it. So we may have created kind of a monster that, that, uh, that doesn't have a We don't identify with a single person like a dictator, but it's certainly uh, something we can't control. Many of the electorate are not well-informed either. And that has me concerned. Um, how do you address those concerns in your book? You know, I, I don't. Uh, I think that the people, both historically, eighty percent of the people get up and go to work every day and just want to want to live with their families and live in peace, right? And and mind their own business. So it's it, it's not unusual that the public's not that informed about this. The, the, we, we, we do rely on our, on our leaders for this, but our leaders right now um, are not going to rock the boat. The elites and, the, and, and even the, the responsible business leaders in the regions have way too much uh, to lose from this, but they will respond when something happens and the central authority overreaches to the common person, and the common person is, is, is pushed to an extent in their home, I think. It could be the home of their factory or their farm, but at their home where they're pushed too far, they're going to rebel. And that, I don't know where that's going to occur, but that's going to happen. And when that happens, 
because the central authority can't resist more and more power and more control. When that happens, then I think the leaders in the regions will respond and support their people. And then, then, then I think we'll have a separation. How long did it take you, Jim, to complete this work, 181 pages? Well, I wrote it intensely uh, over a year and a half period. I started right after the 2012 election, and I, I worked hard on it for about 18 months. But I've been thinking about this. I have boxes of news clippings, books. Uh, I've been thinking about my nation for 50 years. I ran for federal office once in 1978 when I was alarmed over stagflation and the and the great society regulations and the loss of the Vietnam War and the Nixon behavior. You know, I, I, I decided I had to stand up then. And then I uh, used up all my money, so I went back to work and earned a livelihood. And now I'm 70. When I was 70 years old, I decided, you know, I'm going to do this now. So it took me a year and a half, did all the research myself. But it's well documented, and, uh, and, it's, and it's written in plain English language, Jay. So any person should feel they can pick up this book. And it's an easy read. It's a fast read. I wrote it in big type. Not too many tables. It's not a tome. It is well footnoted um, and documented from, uh, I quote, historians and economists and journalists who are res- widely respected and uh, from all political persuasions. So I, I think it's, I'd like my fellow citizens to be thinking about how we have a conversation where we can get along on this continent instead of the, the rancorous debate we have now try to, trying to see who can control this monster we've created in Washington. You've created a cautionary tale. Is there any other underlying message other than we're headed for trouble? Well, the underlying message is human freedom versus human bondage. Hmm. And freedom is not easy, and it's not without cost. And if we're going to remain free, and we're going to remain free for our children, then we're going to have to figure out uh, how to control the monsters that we've created, and uh, it's 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 going to it's it's our job to do. We created them. We're going to have to control them. And the most important thing is, in my view, is human freedom. Now, freedom's relative. Human freedom means different things to different people, and we have a majority of people who would like to be free from risks, and they would like to be free from. Uh, from the obligations of life or the vicissitudes of life, and they want care, and they want care from a big government. They don't care if it's a large central authority. But there are a lot of people in over half the land mass of this country who want the freedom to live an unrestricted, relatively unrestricted life and came to this continent for that reason. And to, if we're going to preserve that and not allow ourselves to be drawn into human bondage, we're going to have to uh, find a pathway. In a couple of paragraphs, share with my audience the reasons they need to be concerned about what your book predicts and also why they should get a copy of the last election. Well, we're going to become impoverished as a people, not the elites, because they'll control the whole process. But the rest of us, the middle class and the poor, we're going to be impoverished because we have made way too many demands on our nation that our nation cannot supply. So we have these unfulfilled promises and we have lots of needy people. This is not going to end well if we don't get a hold of ourselves in the next few years. And so and it's going to affect every single American uh when it when when it comes to pass. So I think to to the reason to read the book 
is 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 to to begin to think about how you and your neighbors and your communities might be having a conversation about how we might get along. I I don't think there's a right and wrong here. There is, but there are enormous differences. And in in the 1850s there was a big right and wrong between slavery and and freedom. But today there's not a huge right and wrong between wanting a large central government to take care of you or wanting to have the freedom to take care of yourself. It's just very different. And I think we need to be having a conversation how we can go forward together because otherwise we're going to be uh, end up in, in, uh, in great civil unrest and what I would describe as a very bad patch. And this could happen while almost all of us are yet alive. It's going to happen sooner rather than later. I believe you have uh, touched on an important topic uh, this is more than just a uh, an alarmist tale that you are are sharing. I believe it has some good rational thought behind it. Are there other books that maybe lean in the same direction that you have uh, taken? Well, Neil Ferguson, uh, an eminent historian, uh, wrote wrote the book Civilization uh, recently, uh, and 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 he inspired that that book inspired me in part because he described the rise of the West and what, how it was different and how we are now degenerating as a civilization. And then he wrote uh, a book very right after that called The Great Degeneration. Um, Fergus Bordewich, uh, a historian, wrote the book America's Great Debate, which was um, about the debates of 1850 when Americans, the, the great lions of the Senate, were trying to figure out how they could make peace, and they couldn't do it. And even as hard as they tried, they couldn't do it because we have fundamental disagreements. And Borderwitch even has a wistful comment. I don't know if it's in his preface or in his epilogue about about maybe people today ought to be reading about those times to to think about um, the, the, the comparisons. And that inspired me too because when I read that book and I thought about today that I uh, I thought, gee, Wilkers, why isn't anybody talking about it? But the reason there's not much talk about it is that the politicians. This is. This is not the politicians are so close to the forest. You know, they 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 can't see the forest for the trees. They're in the trees, mm. and this is what they do for a living. Okay, so they're not going to say let's 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 break the country. The elitists are making tons of money controlling the central authority. It's now the biggest the, the biggest customer there is, and the pundits, the, the, the all the people in the media, they're making a tremendous amount of money on our division. So, you know, nobody has a big incentive to talk about this, and that's why maybe a nobody has to come from somewhere and say, hey, Americans, let's let's have a conversation. This is a thoughtful and uh, very provocative book on many levels, one that I think uh, most everyone in my audience, in fact, everyone in my audience, audience should be getting a copy of. The title, again, is The Last Election, An American Prophecy, and our author, James Glenn Reynolds, Jim, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, Amazon.com. Amazon has it, and uh, Barnes & Noble has it. Uh, and uh, you can Google uh, The Last Election and American Prophecy. Be sure to uh, Google the whole thing if you just get on online. Uh, the Last Election and American Prophecy, and it'll all come up. Uh, but Amazon and Barnes & Noble are the place to get it right now. Thank you, Jim, for sharing your passion and sharing the background story of the last election in American prophecy. Are you planning a follow-up book to this one? Only if this catches on. If this catches on and I, I hit a chord, uh, then, then I may write uh, the how-to. 
but I need a staff for that. I need a couple of terrific intellectuals, one in uh, with Federal Reserve experience and one uh, uh, particularly brilliant uh, legal mind that I've got in my head from the university. Originally, I, I met at the University of Chicago Law School when I was there uh, on, uh, on writing a constitution. But, I, but I'm not writing about that because it's not my place right now. I would do it as a service if this book really caught on. If not, I will probably um, uh, uh, just uh, win my way into retirement. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this book. This is an important topic, and I think you've addressed it well. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jay. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.